This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, this is Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business podcast. My guest today is somebody that is a little bit out of my comfort zone. It's Chef Bobby Flay. You probably know him from any of the 16 cookbooks or 13 shows he's hosted on the Food Channel or the the Cooking Channel. Um, I got to tell you a quick funny story. So the whole concept of this show is find somebody who's a master in their area, whether it's investing in finance or or business people like um, Jim McCann at 1-800-Flowers or Mark Cuban, who owns the Dallas Mavericks, and, and find out what make, made them the, the terrific business person they were. And I've been trying to do more and more non-finance people, and... I thought of Bobby Flay. I don't know what made me it pop into my head. Maybe it was something I, I saw on television. And so I had reached out to his people, and they're like, yeah, sure. He's got a new show, and he's got a new cookbook. He's happy to. And so we had this really fascinating conversation. Of course, on the way home, I think of a thousand questions I should have asked him as a restaurateur. Instead, I have two cookbooks of his about his famous restaurant, Mesa, and this wonderful dish that my wife, I took my wife there for a birthday years ago, and she has not stopped talking about this dish. And he actually walked me through the, through the recipe for that dish. But here's the most fascinating part. The guy is just such a real, genuine person and, and such a true New Yorker. After the show, we walk him down to the um, out of the building. Where are you going, Bobby? I'm taking the subway down to my office. Bobby Flay takes the subway. Yeah, it's the most efficient way to get around the city. So we walk across Lexington Avenue. People come, hey, it's Bobby Flay. Like the crowd sees him. He says hi, shakes the hand. The three of us head down into the subway. He gets on a train and goes off to his destination. It was really quite fascinating. As as real a person and as true a New Yorker as ever you want to meet, without further ado, here is our conversation with chef and restaurateur. Bobby Flay. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is a well-known chef, author of a cookbook, restaurateur, and star on the Food Network, Bobby Flay. Welcome to Masters in Business. I'm so glad to be here. Your introduction is going to take a while. Let me give you the give people <laughs> the quick version of it. Um, you became head chef. First of all, you drop out of high school to start working in restaurants. You're 17. You become head chef at Miracle Grill, which was a lovely little place in the village. Then you open your first restaurant, Mesa Grill. It gets named Restaurant of the Year by Gail Green. You win the James Beard Foundation Rising Star Chef of the Year in 93. You now host or have hosted or specials on the Food Network and Cooking Channel over 13 shows. How many cookbooks? Is this right? Over 12 cookbooks? Yeah, I think it's 13 or 14. 13, wow. And you've, of course, you've won three Emmys, and you are the first chef we've had on, on Masters in Business. You know, I followed your career accidentally. I didn't even know I was following your career. When I was in grad school, the only nice restaurant I could afford to take my then- Where, where was grad school? Grad school was here in the city. Okay. Was at uh, Yeshiva University. Uh-huh. The only restaurant I could afford that was nice was Miracle Grill. Right. And that was late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. It had this delightful outdoor 
garden. garden. Beautiful garden. And a fantastic brunch. Mm-hmm. And one day we just asked somebody, Who, who's the chef here? Oh, some guy named Bobby Flay. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, that's nice. So when Mesa opens, we're one of the first people there. Oh, cool. I remember taking my wife, I think it was her, I won't say what number, but it was a round number birthday. <laughs> and there was a dish that I have a bunch of your cookbooks and we still can't find this dish, which was clams in a curry Thai coconut sauce. Oh, yeah. not But it's not in the Mesa cookbook and it's not in the- right. I don't know if it's in any of your cookbooks. That's a long time ago. That dish has haunted me for years. Is it? Did it have like a wild rice waffle with it? No, it definitely didn't. It was almost like, you know, you go get moule at a, a Belgian place right. and they pretend to have a yeah. Thai sauce. It was like that, only delicious. Okay. So you, you, I don't know if you remember that specifically. We'll talk about the development of food. So, so I mentioned earlier, you dropped out of high school at 17, found your way to restaurants. When did you first fall in love with cooking? I mean, it's hard to say, really. I th- you know, I remember cooking with my mother when I was a kid, you know, at home. Um, the very first thing I remember cooking was um, Mighty Fine Chocolate Pudding. Okay, right from the package? From, from the, the package. And you, all you would do is you'd get a saucepan and put some milk in there. You know, you'd measure out the milk. Mm. And you would bring it to a scald. And then you would add the sort of package of chocolate powder, whatever was in there. And then I remember just uh, stirring it with a wooden spoon and watching it get thick and chocolatey. And I thought, wow, that's this is what cooking is. It actually changes the texture and the look and the flavor of things. And that's what led you to molecular gastronomy. Yeah, no, I don't do molecular <laughs> gastronomy. But, but um, you know, it's... It's it's my very first cooking memory, but like I used to like make a lot of deviled eggs at home and you know things like that. I mean, really simple things. I didn't know that I was really interested in cooking as a profession because, frankly, there was no precedent for that. I mean, cooking was only thought of as a blue collar profession, even when I started cooking professionally. More like a short order chef than a real. Well, just you know, you, there was no such thing as a, as a celebrity chef or a chef that had any sort of name or knowledge. I mean, besides, I'm, I'm sure. You know some uh, some French chefs who own the the top restaurants of the day, but um, in terms of like a, a network dedicated to food and things like that, that uh, that was way far in the future. And and is this an urban legend? You were eight years old, and your folks asked you what you want for Christmas, and you said an easy bake oven. No, that's a real story. The urban legend is how good I am in the basketball court. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. No, I used to actually. I was a I was a good ball player. I mean, I was I'm a I'm a city kid, so I right. I grew up playing. A lot of sports outside in the streets and um, street actually, hoops. Just yeah, down, I mean, I down lo- the corner. I played ball all the time. Mm-hmm. We were talking before the show about what happens when you hit a certain age. Bef- right before I got married, I was playing on the courts over at Thirty Third and Second by the entrance mm-hmm. to the tunnel, and I twist my ankle and I walk home and I'm limping. Yeah. And my wife said, "That's it, you're done with ball." I I, I quit. I quit at forty two. Um, and it, it, honestly, I think about it every day because I love playing basketball. Really? We, used to, we used to play in a restaurant league um, at Basketball City on the West Side, you know, at Chelsea Piers, and it was a, it was a, it was it was great competition. And I mean, I grew I, I grew up playing basketball my whole life, so it was it was almost like my 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 my, my basketball renaissance. And then, um, like you, um, I went up for a rebound and I came down wrong on my ankle, and I I didn't really hurt myself. I just sprained my ankle. And I was like, the next time I'm going to be in a, a cast and I can't do this. And, and that, that was the was end. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a friend of a friend. I want to get the name right. David Chang just opened a new restaurant. And we had said to friends, let's go uh, this weekend. It's in Brooklyn. We'll go on Sunday. Oh, no, it's closed. He's in the restaurant ball league. Yeah. He, he plays. 
So the restaurant's closed on Sunday. Right. So some of these guys who are serious cooks are sure. also serious ball players. Absolutely. So let's keep uh, working our way through our list. Um, so you studied with some of the great chefs at the French Culinary Institute, and you said when you grew up, there really wasn't a frame of reference for chefs. What is it that makes a great chef? Oh. Um, and you can answer the question the other way, what makes a chef great if that's a uh, – well, I think I think the original question is really the real question. I, I think, you know, what makes a great chef? I mean, lots of things. Uh, you know, the word chef really means chief. So basically, besides just being you know, well, first of all, you have to be a good cook. Let let's let's get the fundamentals out of the way. Clearly. I mean, you need to be a good cook. You need to understand the fundamentals. You need to be a very good teacher because you need to be able to uh teach your uh brigade, so to speak, to pull off the things that you need pulled off in the kitchen. You can never do it by yourself as a chef. You also need to be a good leader. You need to be inspirational. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I think that um, you, you need to, just to be dedicated and passionate about food. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Bobby Flay, best known for his work with Miracle Grill, uh, let's go down the list. Mesa, all of the shows on the Food Network. Let's talk a little bit about the business of restaurants. Since you are essentially a restaurateur, everybody knows it's a really challenging business. Most new restaurants don't survive when they open up. What is it that makes it such a challenging proposition for a restaurant to become successful? In New York? Anywhere, but New York City for sure. Right now, um, it's it, it there's a real squeeze on on small businesses in New York City especially the restaurant business as you know the rents in New York are spectacularly high insane just the, insane the labor costs go go up and up the tip credit just got uh pushed right. to the side i mean as it is the restaurant business in general okay across the board across the country it's very difficult to make a profit unless you're unless you're slammed every single night okay now bring it to New York where the rents are you know, quadruple any place else. The labor costs are the same. Um, all the regulations, I mean, it just makes everything really, really difficult. I mean, frankly, I just opened my new restaurant, Gato, a year ago, mm -hmm. and I looked at my business partner, who's been my, it, we've been business partners for 25 years, and I said, Lawrence, I just wanted you to know, I want to open this restaurant really badly, but we're going to probably lose money. I and mean, what does he say to this? All right, let's do it. Really? Because because it's important to us. We you know we really want we really wanted to open Gato. It was a restaurant that I was pining away to open. And sometimes, you know, you you do things not for the money. And that, and this is a, a perfect case of that. You do it for the love of. So that's a question I was going to ask you later. But let's bring it forward. What gets you excited about a new restaurant? Um, well, the energy. Uh, of of course, going through the food. I mean, to me, when I when I open a restaurant. It's food first. So I come up with the menu and the concept first in terms of what I want to cook and what I want to serve. And then everything else sort of gets built around it. Then the, then the design comes in. You know, I think about what the energy of the room wants to, wants to be. Um, and then, you know, we st that those are the two most important things. And then we just sort of fill everything in around it. So it starts with the food, then the energy. Is that is that the decor, the staff, the flow? What do you mean well, by energy of a it, restaurant? It's all of it. But like when you walk into a restaurant as a customer, mm -hmm. there's a certain buzz. It, sometimes it's quiet and people, the restaurateur wants it to be quiet. Sometimes it's really loud and maybe the, the, maybe the, uh, the restaurateur wants it to be really loud, but the customers are sort of not sure if they want it that way. I mean, you have to take 
um, you have to take a tact and you have to stick with it. So for instance, at Gato, I wanted high energy. I wanted it to be bustling, but I wanted it to be you know, controlled chaos. I didn't mm -hmm. want it to be just, I didn't want it to feel like a nightclub. I wanted it to feel like a really good restaurant that's kind of fun and has a little buzz going to it. And then the lighting is incredibly important. Um, and I, That is not on my list. That's interesting. I have a list of things to ask you about what's most important no. in a restaurant, and I don't even think about when, lighting. When it comes to design, lighting is the number one thing. The we, number one thing for design. That's yes, lighting, and we spent a, we spent a lot of money on lighting, um, lighting design. Um, and if you go to Bar American, which is in Midtown here, or mm -hmm. if you go to Gato, they both have these sort of orange glows to the room. It makes everybody look good, mm -hmm. and when you look good, you feel good. You know, I was at a restaurant not too long ago, and I won't mention their name, and it was very dim. And there's a fine line between romantic and too dark. And the waiters literally had these squeezy handheld flashlights, so when you couldn't read, everybody's whipping out their phones to read the menu, and the waiters come by with a flashlight. And I was compelled to ask, hey, if the waiters have to have flashlights... Maybe that means something's wrong with the lighting in the restaurant. Well, that's just because you can't see the menus like me. Well, <laughs> but it was everybody. It wasn't just old people who were 50. It's it true. It was, you walk in, I'm like, wow, it's, uh, it looks like the section is closed. It can and be you too start dark. To see people. It can, you know, I mean, they're looking for that sort of mood lighting. But, you know, right. I think that restaurants can certainly be too dark for sure. And light, you're saying lighting is really very, lighting very significant. Lighting is important. Yes, exactly. So- on a, on a related note, so when you're looking to launch a new restaurant, and, and let's use Mesa as an example. So there's the Mesa that just closed in New York mm -hmm. not too long ago. I think to make way for a condo, is that uh No, is that's that, that was Bolo. Bolo to make way yeah. for a condo. Yeah, Mesa, uh, Mesa closed because after 23 years, is it that long? My, my rent was quadrupled. That's a lot. So you opened up a Mesa in Vegas. And the Bahamas. And the Bahamas. And so when you're scoping out a place, when you're scouting a place to open a new restaurant, what is it that you're looking at? Is it just traffic or is it uh, something more complex than that? Well, first first of all, location is important. I don't care how good you are, how popular you are. Um, uh, you want location. You know, the, you know, the old sort of adage, location, 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 which is really true. When I open a restaurant and we're going to spend a bunch of money to open a restaurant, I want every chance I can. So I, I start with location. Location is very important. Then how the space feels. Um, is it is it a space that we can actually design a restaurant that's going to actually feel good when you walk into it? I don't like restaurants that where the ceilings are too low, for instance. Um, I don't like restaurants that that where the rooms are broken up. I like one big room when you can and you, when you walk in, the bar and the and the dining room have a have an affinity for each other. I think that it's really important that, and their energy sort of bounces off each other. So let's talk about restaurants that aren't yours. What sort of rooms do you walk in and say, wow, there's a really good energy in here? Keith McNally. Do you know mm -hmm. who that is? I know the name. Sure. Okay, so he owns like Balthazar. And oh, sure. He had Pastis, Mirandi. I eat in Keith McNally's restaurants more than I eat in any other restaurant besides my own. Actually, I don't really eat my own. But when I, when I go out, I'm in, I'm in Keith McNally's restaurants because th this guy, he, to me, he is, a fanta he, is the, he is one of the best restaurateurs in New York. And he creates an amazing energy in great um, surroundings, and it makes you want to be there. And the food is really simple. You know, he's not reinventing the wheel by any stretch of the imagination. But but he but the food is always solid and good, and you know what to expect. And they deliver on their promise. And I always feel good in his in his restaurants. So in the last minute we have left in this segment, what are the things? What is the most important thing that most restaurateurs get wrong? 
they undercapitalize. It takes that a lot of money to open up a uh, a restaurant. Well, if, if it let's say you think it's going to cost two million dollars, it's really four. Double whatever your initial. It's double the time are. to build it and double the money to to to, to finance it. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Bobby Flay, restaurateur, host on the Food Network, cooking channel, uh, cookbook author. And let's get into the specific details. You've hosted more than a dozen cooking shows on the Food Network and cooking channel. You have 13 cookbooks published. Currently, your shows are Bobby Flay's Barbecue Addiction and The Worst Cooks in America. And you've won three Emmys. And the funny thing is, you began your television career back in 1994. How does a chef find his way into television? Well, the Food Network um, started in New York and as a startup cable company. And Mesa Grill was was one of the hot restaurants of, of that time. Restaurant of the Year, the yeah. James Beard Award. Uh, that, that was the pinnacle in New York back then. Yes, exactly. And so... They were looking for people to come on the network, you know, and and frankly, a lot of people were like, "What are they going to talk about, you know, for twenty four hours in food? You know, they'll run out of things to talk about soon." Anyway, um, long story short, I saw it as an opportunity to to showcase, you know, who I was and what my restaurants were because I knew that people all over the country would start watching this network. And so like when the family from Minneapolis is coming to New York for three days, they'll maybe they'll pick my restaurant as one of the restaurants that they'll come to. It just puts, you know, basically um, you know, people in, their, in your seats. And so I, I looked at it as a really good way to market my restaurants. But this has evolved into a lot more than, hey, let me get some more butts in the seats. This has yeah. really become a second career for you. Yeah, it really has in some way. I never think of myself on television because I'm because the the restaurants are so important to me that you know, and the Food Network knows this. I mean, I've been on the Food Network for twenty years, but they're 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 in second place. My my restaurants, my kitchens, that's the place that I always want to be more than any place else. But the network obviously <clears throat> has become very much my family, and uh, has given me a fantastic platform for what I want to do and and what I want to uh, to try and experiment with. And the amazing thing is, really, food on television, what was Julia Child, like 1963? The Food Network has exploded in popularity the past couple of years. Well, it's, re it's really part of pop culture now. I mean, I think that Iron Chef did that. You know, when I, when I, when I, when I competed against the Japanese um, Iron Chef in America, uh, I, I, f I think it's probably 12 years ago now, I think that that really changed the way people looked at food on television. And then that led to Throwdown with Bobby Flay. Yes, exactly. And, and that ultimately... Now, originally, there was a little uh, bad blood between you and um, the Japanese chef. Morimoto? Yes. Well... And now you guys are supposed to be buds. No, that... we're good friends. I mean, you know, it, it was just... It, it was sort of in the heat of the competition, but you know how that goes. For sure. Yeah. And uh, you, had, you had famously leapt up on the table and mm -hmm. brandished your knives and... They were offended by that. They were offended by it. Um, a little cultural I, difference? No, I, apparently the cutting board in Japan is sacred. I didn't know that. Did you right. know that? No. I, okay. uh, until I read it yeah. in something you had written, yeah, so, I had no idea. So I had no idea, obviously. And my sous chefs kind of lifted me up on the table. We, we sort of made a we, – we were having a hard time for the hour. And we sort of came back at the end, got all the food done, and we were just happy. They lifted me up on the table. And lo and behold, I, you know, obviously I insulted him. So I apologize, Morimoto. <laughs> and now it's all – it's, it's all, all good between all good. you two. So when you're, um, how involved are you in the creation of, of some of these new shows? Because 
You've done a lot of these. It looks like you're trying a lot of really interesting things. Well, right now I'm doing Beat Bobby Flay, which is my new show. I mean, I created Throwdown. I created Beat Bobby Flay. I create I create most of the shows that I do, Barbecue Addiction. So nobody's pitching you. You're not, you're not like, I got to take a meeting with the Food Network. No, they All right, Bobby me. Flay, now we're going to do no, Shark they, Tank for chefs. No, they, <laughs> I'm sure you'll see that soon. <laughs> um, no, they pitch me all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a really good relationship with them. And I have a production company too. Rock Shrimp Productions is my production company. So we produce... You know, a lot of my shows and we produce other people's shows as well. So what makes you decide to accept or, or you know, give green light or pass on a show? What elements are you looking at? What factors? Are you I'm looking at? for simplicity. And I think that a lot of times people miss that. Miss that. The, the concept of a show is simple. Th those are the successful ones. A lot of times they'll say, just kind of what you did. We're going to take Shark Tank. We're going to take Iron Chef. We're going to take this, and we're going to we're going to roll it into this this one show. It's going to have all these different elements. But basically, what happens is it gets muddled, and you can't follow it. Uh, Beat Bobby Flay is really simple. Two of my friends show up. They bring two chefs with them. Those two chefs go at it for twenty minutes. One of them wins. Then that chef then tells me what their signature dish is, and we cook it for forty five minutes, and there's a winner. That's it. It's really simple, but what we do is we surround it with a big audience, um, and it's got it's basically thirty minutes of pure energy. That sounds like a lot of fun. So now let's shift to publishing and and cookbooks. In the last minute we have, you've got a dozen plus cookbooks out. What drives the process of putting out a new cookbook, and how do you develop new recipes? Basically, either a new show or a new restaurant basically begets a new book. And there's a whole theme of cooking, and you can basically work your way through all of that yeah, in well, a single cookbook. Exactly. I have a show about brunch called Brunch at Bobby's on Food Network, and so in the fall, we have a brunch book coming out. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is restaurateur and Food Network star Bobby Flay. Before we talk a little bit about investing in restaurants, let me ask you this question. How does a kid from the city find his way into thoroughbred horse racing? <laughs> uh, well, when you drop out of high school or you cut school um, in the 80s, you go to Aqueduct in Belmont with your friends. That's what we did. I mean, we, you know, we, you know, we were New York City kids and, you know, we, we didn't want to go to school, so we went to the track. I mean, it's sort of like, it's out of the movie kind of story. Right. And- so I was always fascinated by it. My grandfather took me to Saratoga Springs, which is one of the most beautiful places ever. And I still go every August. And then when I started getting a little success in business, I thought, well, you know, it'd be really cool to own a horse. And I've really, um, I've really gotten into it in a big way. You know, I, I race and I breed horses. I have a lot of horses in Kentucky. And You've York. had a few big winners too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, 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 I've had a little bit of luck. It's just so much fun. And I love the social part of it. I love getting dressed up for the big races and and throwing parties beforehand. It's just it's just one of those things that I think as a city kid, um, it's nice to kind of um, get out to the country every once in a while. And you know, and I and I go to Kentucky a lot, and I spend a lot of time there. I always tell people who are from the downstate New York region who have never been up to Saratoga. Oh man! Hey, you have to get up there. It's August. unlike any other place you've yeah, been. It's spectacular. It's, it's actually six weeks from the middle of July to the end of, till, till basically um, Labor Day, um, that there's a, a great race meet. Some of the best horses in the world you know, show up there to compete, but it's just a great social environment and, it's, and people just have a great time. And the great thing about horse racing is for $2, you can have an opinion. Um, and actually now, you know, Governor Cuomo appointed me to the New York Racing Association board. So I've been 
trying my hand at that. That's a whole new experience. That, that sounds like a lot of fun. You're, you're going to get involved in politics. I don't know um, about that. So let's talk a little bit about the business of uh, new restaurants. How, how often are you looking at new opportunities? Always. Always. Always looking at new opportunities. You know, um, besides my high-end restaurants, I also have a, um, I have a slew of burger places. 18 Bobby's Burger Palaces. There you Is go. Right? You got it. And so, you know, we're constantly looking to, uh, to expand that as well. And, and I think that's the one that sort of can grow from a business standpoint. I think that the sky's the limit there for sure. What's fascinating, and again, this is a business show, we see McDonald's running into a lot of trouble, and mm -hmm. then we see places like Shake Shack, like Five Guys, go down the list of all the yeah. non-Burger King slash McDonald's burger joints doing really well. What is it about the Simple Burger that has so much room for potential growth? Well, first of all, um, a burger is such an American thing. It's something that never goes out of style. It doesn't um, have any loss or gain based on the economy. It's always something that's going to be um, a popular period. And I think that you know, as our tastes change in this country for the better, people want better everything, including burgers. And so, I think that that's that's some of the struggles that McDonald's is is having. That now you can get a better burger. You know, for for a value price, right? Not a buck or two more money. You know, a, a meal at McDonald's is what five or six dollars. I don't know. You when you come out, <laughs> you shouldn't know. Yeah. Um, when you come out of a place like Shake Shack, it's eight or ten bucks. I'm yeah. assuming you guys Same are thing. priced similarly. And I notice you guys do a lot of things. The burger of the month. There's yeah. a lot of lot of variations there that I haven't seen elsewhere. Yeah, and we, you know. You know, unlike some of the other uh, other better burger places, you know, we have hand cut fries. I mean, it's the it's the real, you know, French process of cooking French fries. Um, and you know, obviously, you know, our the, the meat is amazing. All of our ingredients are incredibly fresh. I mean, that's what people want to eat these days. And if I can if I can reach people who can't get to my higher end restaurants, whether it's out of their price point or they're just at it's out of their location. Um, I can reach them through Bobby's Burger Palace, and that's that's really my goal. So you started that out in Smithhaven Mall by Stony Brook University. Yes. What was it like first testing a new burger joint out in the burbs like that? Well, that was our pilot store, you know, and um, it's uh, it was it was it was a great testing ground. It really was. Um, you know, it's in a mall. It's out in Long Island, um, and people have really. Uh, gravitated towards it. So how many of these would you like to open? Are you going to go for a hundred and more? Is I that mean, the long-term plan? I don't look at it that way. Um, right now we have 18. We're going to open another one in Maryland in a few months. And then, you know, we're, we're going to do some, uh, we we want to go to the Middle East as well and, and open some there. But uh, we have, a, this is a big country. And so we want to go to places like Texas and California and open more in Florida, places that we haven't done yet. That sounds fascinating. And and if you look at the success of some of these other burger chains, <clears throat> clearly there's a demand for higher quality, not quite fast food. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Shake Shack, you know, they on their first day they were valued at one point six billion dollars. Not too shabby. No, and some people say, Well, is it overvalued? I mean, frankly, I, who knows? I mean, but I think I think the most important message there is that it's a message that People are saying, and the marketplace is saying, we we want better and we'll pay a little bit more for it. We saw that with Chipotle, which was first bought by McDonald's and then spun out right. as a standalone, and there's lines out the door constantly. We've done a great it, job. It's clear that at least the millennial generation 
is much more interested in fresh food. They're willing to pay a little more, and they're really not McDonald's customers. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about how the internet has has impacted the restaurant business. We have Yelp, and you could purchase uh, reviews at Yelp, which has been a problem um, for them. We have Open Table, Twitter, blogs. How has the internet impacted the restaurant business? Well, I think the internet, first and foremost, has impacted it from um, just from information. You know, obviously, it's, it's the information highway, as they call it, right? So now when people want to go to a restaurant, they go to the internet and they check certain blogs, they, they check certain lists, and they see what people are saying about your restaurant, um, where the restaurant is. They're making reservations online more than ever. And so, you know, obviously, it's it's um, it's it's incredibly important, and 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 social media as well. Does Open Table work for the advantage of the restaurateur, or is it taking money out of their pockets? I don't. I mean, it's taking money out of their, out of our pockets because we pay a fee, right? So it literally is taking money out of our pockets. But you know, I mean, you pay for good service, and I think that that Open Table is the way people at this point want to make their reservations, and so we make it available to them. Does it bring more customers in? Is it an advantage to a restaurant? Because when I'm, as someone who goes out to eat a lot, when I look at a restaurant to get the phone number, I see open table is over there. I'd rather call directly than just click. That's, but that's because you're old school. I do the same thing. Yeah. I don't know if it's old school. I just like, why am I paying these guys $2? Oh. I'm just as happy. You know, why do I, am I going to make, look, I put myself through college and grad school as a waiter, as, yeah. a, as, a, as a bartender. So I know how, a little bit how the business works. And I'm always like, why is this middleman between me and the restaurateur? And how many people are they charging? How much it is all the time? Yeah. Well- that's just the cost of doing business, I guess. It is. And what about reviews, blogs, things like that? Is that something that matters or is it not as significant? You know, the movie we just saw that was out last year was Chef with the famous scene with the meltdown. Obviously, it's a gross exaggeration, but there's always a touch of truth. How annoying are some of these um, Yelp reviews and, and blog reviews? I don't read Yelp. You don't? No. To me, the problem with Yelp is that I don't even know. It could be some of my competitors writing writing right. bad reviews. I mean, you just don't, you just don't know. So I, to me, it, it's like it's the last place that I look. As opposed to let's say Zagats, where I like Z I like I like Zagats because they they do really um, interesting stories and I, and they have integrity. Um, there's a there's a um, there's one called Infatuation, which I think is fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's a couple of guys who have really built up their business and they're building it more and more. And they they go into restaurants looking for the good. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's not good, they will tell you. Okay, it's not like they're just going to only write good reviews. But but I like their attitude towards things. There are also some bloggers who go in looking for the bad because they feel like if they write a bad review, they're going to get more clicks. Right, it's going to get like, noticed. Sure. Yes, because people like negativity. Right. But you know, I think that's unfair, obviously, especially for restaurateurs who put up all their money and their blood, sweat, and tears, worked their whole careers, and then somebody's going to write a bad review about them because well, they can get more clicks on their on their, on their site, it's not fair. No, that's not. And look, you know, if you've ever worked as a, as a waiter or a short order chef, it's really hard work. This yeah. isn't the sort of thing that you can phone in. No, I mean, in New York, I think Rub Street is a, is a good one as mm -hmm. well. But frankly, the New York Times is the king. Really? Uh, when it comes to restaurant reviews, there is no more impactful review than the New York Times. It's not even, it's not even, nothing is in the same ballpark. Not, so there's, it's the New York Times, nothing is it's second. It's New York Times everything and everything else. else, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And you know, even out on in the burbs where I live, 
we were going to this local restaurant. It was called the Brass. It's still called the Brass Rail. And great burgers, really good food. I love their Caesar salad. It's speck ham wrapped around a, a romaine lettuce. And um, and then the New York Times review comes out. You can't get near the place there for six go. months. And it, it's even out in the burbs. It's really oh yeah. It's really amazing the New York impact Times is it has. A- absolutely. Um, let's talk since we're in New York City. Let's talk a little bit about some of your favorite um, restaurants. And I want to get down and dirty. So other than your own restaurants. What's your favorite pizza here in the city? Uh, pizza. I like Motorino. Okay. I think it's a fantastic Napoleon style pizza. Um, and how about your favorite uh, burger joint? Oh, JG Melons. Everybody. I grew up there. Oh, really? My father's best friend owns it. So that. But but no 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 no. Let me so tell you no, something. No bias involved. No zero bias. You just love their burgers. And I get They're a, consistently. But on I the get top. a check every time. So there's no like there's there's no sort of nepotism. There. Right. I mean, it's but and you ask anybody, there's something about that burger, and just like you asked me about the shows, uh-huh. it's so simple, but there's something that hits the spot. Uh, we've been speaking with Bobby Flay, restaurateur. Cookbook author, uh, star of the Food Network. If you enjoy these conversations, be sure and check out our full podcast where the tape keeps running and we discuss many more things in great detail. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. This is Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, I enjoy the podcast, as we were talking earlier, because I don't have to worry about commercials or the time or anything like that, and I could relax a little bit. Um, I mentioned previously I first started eating your food at Miracle Grill, which really stood out. That Was that the first restaurant where you really took over a kitchen and Made it your own? Yeah. I, I was the chef there for three years, and it was a brand new restaurant, and I stayed there for three years in the kitchen, and I, you know, it was a fantastic experience. It was also a, a delightful restaurant. I think it was 1st and 6th, is that right? 6th and 7th on 1st Avenue. Yep. And um, it was also one of the first times in New York City I had something with a Southwestern flavor. Mm-hmm. How did you come by, and that's really become your signature- you worked with somebody who exposed you to that? Tell us a little bit. A guy named Jonathan Waxman, who now has a restaurant called Barbuto in the West Village. And if you haven't been there, go there. It's so good. Um, he um, he was from California and in the early to mid-80s came to New York and basically brought California and Southwestern cuisine to, to the East Coast for the first time. Uh, and he, I worked in all of his restaurants and I fell in love with like you know the you know the fresh and dried chili peppers and you know blue corn uh, not in not in a bag not in a, on tortilla chips but like real blue corn meal and making dishes out of blue corn and all kinds of beans and limes and avocados and all those amazing ingredients that make up southwestern cuisine so i really decided to hone in on that as something that i really wanted to to research even further so then i went to the southwest and i worked in lots of different restaurants and you know just for a few weeks at a time so one thing about our business is it's very giving, um, and people let you know chefs and cooks into their kitchens just to kind of experience it. So you can reach out to a restaurant in Arizona and say, 
hi, you don't know me, I'm Bobby Flay. One day I'm going to be someone big in New York, but I'd like to yeah. work in your kitchen for a few weeks. And you'd probably get a positive response. Really? Yep. So how many different restaurants did you, and what, what was it, California? Was it New Mexico? No, it was mostly uh, mostly Texas and, and New Mexico. I worked in about three or four restaurants over like you know a two-month period just to kind of hang out and see what was going on down there. And you really pick up the flavor of that cuisine. And and then I came back and you know worked at... Uh, at Miracle Grill, and then Mace, and then I opened Mesa Grill. So the love of barbecue does that come directly from Texas? My the love of barbecue is just I just like it. <laughs> well, mean, listen, what's more primal than a couple of guys throwing meat on an open flame? Yeah, but you really have taken it to a whole different level. Yeah, I mean we can get into the whole barbecue versus grilling thing. Okay, but, so let let's talk about that. Well, do you know the difference between whether you're smoking something? No, or, what's grilling and barbecue? What's the difference? Um, so the one thing I know is you don't close the lid on the barbecue. You leave it open unless you want the open flame, I'll give unless you the, you're smoking it. I'll give you the simple definition. Go ahead. Barbecue is low and slow. Grilling is quick. Got so it. So if, if I'm grilling something, I want to grill a steak, you throw it on the grill. You right. cook it for a few minutes, it's done. Barbecue is like barbecue brisket mm-hmm. or pork shoulder or ribs, things that you cook really low and slow. Sometimes there's smoke on it, sometimes there's not, but that's basically... I mean, it's always there's always makes, some sort of smoke on. That it, makes but, sense. Where yeah. do you come on the dry rub versus wet sauce? Uh... I like them both. I like dry rubbing to create a crust, and I like to finish it with a sauce. So you do both. I on, do on the same meat. Yes, that, that's that's one way to uh, one way to solve it. Yeah. Um, what other restaurant concepts are you thinking about going forward? Like, are you always you always have three or four restaurants out ahead of you? I don't know about that. I I do want to. De- you know, there's a possibility that I want to do the next version of Mesa Grill. Since Mesa Grill did close last year, um, I miss it, you know. But at the same time, you know, it was 23 years old, and it was time to, to sort of do the next version of it. So in some ways, I might have been a blessing in disguise. Just like Gato is the next version of what Bolo was um, that closed six years ago when they knocked the building down. So, you know, Gato is a Mediterranean restaurant. Obviously, Mesa Grill would be in, in more in the in the south by southwest vernacular. So that used to be on Lower Fifth, below Twenty Third Street. That's fairly 15th. fairly prime uh, real estate. Yeah. Can you now pop open a restaurant anywhere in New York and in a lower rent district, and you're still going to attract uh, patrons, or do you still need that sort of flow? I think. Uh, I I want I want every advantage I can get. It's too hard. It's just it's just really too hard. I mean, like you look at the restaurants in Tribeca. You know, it's hard to get to Tribeca, and I love going to Tribeca. Mm-hmm. But I would say that restaurants in Tribeca are at a disadvantage than a restaurant, like say, in Midtown or, you know, in or like even in NoHo or SoHo, because there's just not as much traffic. And it's not like the rents are that much cheaper anymore. There used to be this huge. Disparity yeah. that was a lower rent district. You can't say that anymore. Now that said, there were some very successful restaurants in Tribeca. You know, you talk think about Nobu, for instance, sure. or Tribeca Grill. You know, there's, there's a handful of there's a handful um, of of restaurants in Tribeca that are successful, but not not dozens and dozens. And and that's a function of the locale more. Yeah, than it's just a location else. thing. So let me ask you, what surprises you when you open a new restaurant? Because I would imagine. Because you roll out a lot of fairly creative dishes. I don't want to say out there dishes. You're never way on the fringe. 
But are you ever surprised you roll out a new dish and it, it flops and other dishes you think, ah, this is a throwaway, I'll just put it on the menu and everybody's ordering it? I think that you put menu, I think there there is some, look, I think that you have to have a combination of a couple of things on your menu. You have to have some things that are crowd pleasers. So like for instance, you know, you know people are going to order chicken. <laughs> you know people are going to order certain kinds of fish like salmon. Um, you know they're going to order steak. <clears throat> but you also have to have some things that, that um, sort of add to the interesting part of the menu. So like, you know, if I do a quail dish, I might sell five a night. It's okay. It's not going to be the most popular thing, and I know it's not going to. But for the people who want to try something a little bit more exotic or they don't want to go sort of down the sort of pedestrian lane, there's something there for them. And I think you have to have both. Do you do you ever get really surprised by something that you didn't think was going to pop that gets traction and, and takes off? Yeah. In fact, there's a there's a dish at um, at Gato, which is a vegetarian dish, and you know ve- people are eating vegetables now more than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, and as a chef, we have to make them more interesting. So, for instance, um, we have a dish called um, it's a paella. Okay, and, and usually paella has lots of shellfish and chicken and chorizo, and it's it's, it's you know it's Delicious. got all these different proteins. We our paella is made with kale and wild mushrooms and crispy artichokes. It's completely vegetarian. It sounds awful, and you're telling me that's delicious. It's it's the number one entree. Okay? Really? L- listen to this. Okay, we've been open for just over a year. It's undefeated. Every night, wow. every single night. Um, since we've opened, it's been the number one entree every night. That's that's stunning. There that's you go. absolutely stunning. So now let's expand that. How often do you do something with a, a restaurant, or you see a new restaurant and you say, that's a slam dunk, that's going to kill it, and it flops, or vice versa, you walk out of a restaurant and go, I don't know what these people are thinking, and it blows up. Well, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the thing about the restaurant business. You can do everything right and fail. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I really, and it, it's, it's, it's hard to even believe that that's true, but the restaurant business is a very tough business. It's competitive, it's expensive, there's razor-thin margins. Yes, and, and also you can do things not well and be really successful. I mean, we've all been to restaurants where like you're like, this place is not good, but you turn around and the place is packed. And there's a line out the door yeah, exactly. and a month wait so, for reservations. So it's, it's, it's listen, I, I don't pretend to know or have the, the magic potion for successful restaurants, the only thing I, I, you know, I'm a native New Yorker. I feel like I know how to feed New Yorkers, and that's sort of how I keep it. And we're a fairly discriminating bunch, but we're pretty open-minded. We tend to try a lot of different foods. Well, yeah, but New York has a lot of options, and so somehow you have to capture the customer. You have to capture their attention. And don't and let them go. To keep it. Lock the how, door. In, how important is repeat business to a restaurant? It's it's life or death. It's the lifeblood. It's the life or death. And you know, frankly, like at Gato, it's it's a very difficult reservation right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've been lucky enough to get some really fantastic reviews and, and buzz. And people really seem to like the restaurant. So people are coming far and wide to eat there. They're making reservations 30, 45 days ahead of time. Um, but I know that the core of my business there for the long term are the people that live in the neighborhood. So we really look to take care of people in the neighborhood. Like if somebody from around the corner um, uh, walks into the restaurant, we'll find a table for them. So you, do you expect that a hot restaurant eventually cools off it has and to. it becomes just a local neighborhood joint? Yes, it has to. That's the, just the, the question. The question is, and, and you've seen this many times, hot restaurants, you, you can't believe how hot they are, and then you, you look at them six months later and they're gone. 
the the key is it's about I would say it's about 18 months. If you if you have a, if you're lucky enough to have a restaurant that has some buzz and it's hot and has some good reviews, that around 18 months, a lot of that sort of just fades away. And if you can transition to then become a restaurant that people think of as one of their sort of local places, then you can have success. And you you can actually run into an issue where people are even afraid to try. Oh, I'll never get a rest of a reservation. Now. We don't want anybody to feel that way. So that that sounds like you have a uh, a, a savvy approach. Um, let's talk about some other chefs. You mentioned one earlier that you really liked. Uh, who are the chefs that you think are underrated or underappreciated that you really like what they do? Uh, underrated or underappreciated? Hmm. Well, we can ask the other question. Who do you think is overrated? Um, um, not, that's not... You never <laughs> well, that's get... why I asked the first question. No, I thought not... you would prefer that No, one. no, that's never happening. Um, <laughs> I don't think any chef is overrated. I think that if you're a chef, like, you've given your life to this business, it's like, more power to you, you know? Um... Who's overlooked? Who do people, or let me ask it differently, what chefs out there that you found that you really like haven't been discovered by the masses? That's none. None. No, especially because, because now, if somebody's really good, they get discovered. They get discovered in about thirty seconds because of all the blogs and the internet, social I mean, media, Twitter. Yeah, there's no. There's, so there's no more there's people no toiling away in obscurity. Zero. If they're half decent, they'll be found out. Exactly right. Is is that good for the restaurant business? Of course. And that's got to be good for chefs who are who in the past might have been toiling away in obscurity. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's almost too much information because it's it's almost hard to separate it all. But it's. I think that in general, I think that, you know. Um, it's just making everybody better. So that's one way the industry has changed, the rise of social media and everything else. How else has the restaurant business itself changed? I think it's harder to make more. I think it's harder to make a profit um, just based on what's going on in terms of, you know. Uh, you mentioned earlier New York City is making it harder to be a restaurateur. What is. are some of the things that the city is doing well, that they shouldn't be doing? Well, it's a city and a state, really, but it's, you know, the um, the tip credit um, for, for now servers. Now, explain that. People used to, servers used to get paid a low wage, $2 an hour, and they would actually earn most of their living on tips. Yeah, of course, because that's how that's how servers basically How has make that changed? Well, it's, it's going to add hundreds of thousands of dollars of cost to a restaurateur, um, depending on how much business you do. And it just makes it almost impossible to um, to turn a profit. So I mean, what's the thinking behind that? Because a decent restaurant with a good waiter is going to make a couple hundred bucks a night. Oh, easily. What's the thinking behind it? Yeah. I have no idea. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, not to me. I mean, obviously it was done for for a particular reason. But I just I just think that... Um, you know, I, listen, it, it's, a, it's a political issue, obviously. But I, I, I just, you know... I, I, when I look at it, I'm thinking to myself, okay, we're giving hundreds of people jobs or across the board in New York, you know, thousands and tens and tens of 19, thousands. 19,000 restaurants in New York yeah, City? Yeah, I mean, you can't, I, I can't imagine how many jobs that restaurateurs are giving out there. And so that, so that should, we should be in some way celebrated for that. Instead, we're being penalized for it. And it just makes it almost impossible. You'll see restaurants close because of it. Because of this. Yeah, Absolutely. That and and is is there any pushback? Is there any backlash? Uh, to well, us? there will be pushback. It's supposed to start January first of next year, and you know we're 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 basically looking at lots of options. Has there been litigation filed against the city for this? 
Um, I don't know. It's an, it, it, it'll be interesting to see uh, how this develops. So, so that makes it com- more difficult to run a restaurant in New York mm-hmm. City. How do you like the uh, the ABCD restaurant ratings, which we now see in Windows? I, I like the ABCD restaurant ratings. You know, when it first started, um, there was a lot of controversy about, you know, uh, the city going after every single restaurant, failing them, then passing them, and making us pay fees. I mean, again, it was another controversial thing that happened. Um, I think that I think the health department has now got it right. And for people outside of New York City listening to this. Every restaurant in New York gets a health grade. You need an A. And it's right in your window. It's an A. And let me tell you something. You don't have an A or a B. People aren't going in there to That's eat. That's true. You, you know? know, so you have to, it's either A or you're toast. Yeah. But, you know, listen, I think that what's happened now is that um, I think the health department is sort of seeing, like, they're basically making judgments. Of course, there's always a, te- they, they, they can always get you on some technicalities that have nothing to do with, you know, with uh, really serving clean and healthy food in a clean and healthy environment. And so um, I think that they're taking a much bigger picture of you now, and I think it's I think it's actually working out well. So this is actually a positive uh, Yes, but it started out— It, it was a disaster when they disaster, first launched it. Disaster. Yeah. Disaster. It was a mess. There were and, a lot of good restaurants that were not getting A's. Well, they, 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 um, they took Thomas Keller at Per Se, who was, you know, charges $500 a person, basically— they took, um, you know, I, I don't, I can't remember what happened, but they either gave him a really bad grade or they closed him down or something ridiculous. And then, and then there was like outcry from everybody. Like the New York Post wrote some editorial. I mean, and they finally sort of took a look and got their act together. Said we, we, we need the the bigger purposes to clean up. Yeah. The the troublesome restaurants. Exactly. Not take the top tier restaurants that are doing that are actually have that have great technique and set the standards yes, exactly. for kitchens and cleanliness. And of course. Look, anyone who's ever worked as a waiter can tell horror stories. Yeah, of course. Milk left out overnight, yeah. and the, that that's probably the the, the least least terrible yeah. thing you could say. So let's let's keep plowing through some of my um, questions about your cooking. So I know you started, you fell in love with southwestern cuisine. But how has your cooking evolved since then? Well, now I'm cooking Mediterranean food at Gato. So I mean, I do that's a, little, a big change. I do a little bit of both. I mean, you know, I love I love traveling in the Mediterranean. I love you know Italy and France and Spain and Greece and you know on and on. And so I love eating that way. So I decided to open a restaurant of how I want to eat today, and that's what Gato is. So how often are you actually all the time cooking? You're all you're back the on the kitchen. Absolutely. Like if I walk into Gato on a Friday night, Bobby Flay is making my dinner. Is it's that what's a really going good on? chance? Really. Uh-huh. And it, that's really not the case for a lot of other chefs who do a little bit of everything. Yeah, I mean, like I said before, my most favorite place to be is the kitchen, and so you'll you'll find me in my restaurants almost all the time. So what else were your big food influences? Meaning what? So what did this? Clearly, this just doesn't pop out of nowhere. Your parents, friends, family—like what fa- first started pushing you into um, becoming a chef, wanting to run restaurants? That that just doesn't spring out of nowhere. Well, I needed it? a job. So I mean, that's literally. how you first started working in the restaurant. Yeah. You left high school. You started working. And then you ultimately, someone said, "I got to send this kid to French Colonial." Yeah, Joe Allen, who it's I mean, famous Joe, Broadway yeah, restaurant, still open. And you know, Joe gave me my tuition to go to school. I was working there; that was my first job. And then he said, "You know, 
there's a new school opening up called the French Culinary Institute, and you should go there. I was like, well, I don't want to go back to school. <laughs> I had just gotten out of school. I was happy to be out of it. But anyway, I actually had to go back and get my, my GED, my equivalency diploma, in order to, to go get... to school there. So, I, I but he had to see something in you to get you to... Uh... To say, he didn't just randomly pluck you from the line. Yeah, I mean, I think he thought that, you know, maybe I could be an asset to him later on. And I Listen, he the thing about Joe Allen that I was taught and have taken with me is he doesn't do everything for the money. He does things because he feels like doing it and he feels like it's the right thing to do. And, and that's what he did by handing me my tuition that day. That's an amazing, uh, amazing story. Yeah. So we're talking about some changes in the industry. It's not just the Internet. What's your opinion on food trucks? I love food trucks, but like like anything else, there's good food trucks and not good food trucks. But I think it's really cool that you can get like you know Korean tacos that are delicious on a food truck, or you can. I mean, you name you name a cuisine, it's is a there. truck. Yeah, and I and I think that that's great. If you go over to Sixth Avenue in the mid forties, yeah. you'll you could walk four or five blocks and come across a dozen. Different. It's amazing. And you know what it does? It gives people who have the passion for this an opportunity for not so much money to actually go out and, you know, put their own shingle out. And it's I think not running it's... a restaurant for $2 million. It's exactly. It's 25 grand, you get a truck. Exactly. And, and basically and, you start promoting and it. And I love that. And I think that that's a great way for somebody to start a business. And is that potentially an entree into the restaurant business for these yeah, folks? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's been plenty of stories of food trucks turning into, uh, you know, bricks and mortar, actual restaurants. Yes, yeah. and then I want to I want to talk a little bit about the the cookbooks because we really have glossed over that. What's the process like of creating a new dish? Is this experimentation? Are you looking at a dish and saying, you know, I could twist this a little bit and make it more interesting? How do you come up with something that's unique and special and not just you know, grilled chicken. You know, I have this team of women in my office known as the B team. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've looked at my website, but mm-hmm. they are, um, they're all, they all have their own lanes um, as my assistants, but they all share one thing, which is they, they all love to cook and they all love food. So in my office, all we're doing is talking about ingredients and dishes and restaurants and on I mean that's basically the conversation that happens it'd be like at Bloomberg people are talking about finance in my office we're always talking about food at some level so those conversations spur all kinds of things they spur new shows new new dishes new ideas when I need to like you know I'm working on my spring menus for Gato and for Bar American right now like I'll sit down with them and I'll brainstorm with them those that's how books and shows and, and new dishes that's how it all gets done how often are you coming out with new dishes for for the restaurants? Is it seasonal? Yeah, four times a year. And so, and once you get a, a seasonal re, uh, menu, does that continue unchanged, or will you move stuff no, in and out? I move it. I move it every day. So you try different specials. You see what works. You see what doesn't work. Yeah, that's we, a, it's an ongoing process. It's completely ongoing. And the last question that has been tormenting me is, <laughs> why can't I find the don't recipe, be tormented the the mesa recipe for the Thai clams in in coconut curry. Uh, I don't know. Is it? It's clam. What was it? Just clams. So this was. I want to say mid nineties, maybe even late. What 90s. was the dish though? So it was an appetizer. Yeah. It was a bowl of clams. Okay. In a Thai coconut broth. Okay. And it had uh, a red curry. Right. It, had, it, it was sort of some fresh cilantro. Yeah. Uh, some scallions and. 
Look, I've had variations of that dish in a million places. My wife to this day, she, oh, you seen Bobby Flay today? Ask him about that coconut It's dish. easy. But what you did something with that that was unlike anything we've had elsewhere. Well, I mean, it's a it's a lot of like aromatics. So it's like fresh ginger, garlic, and onions, and then some chilies, and then you sweat it with with some white wine. Let the white wine reduce all the way down, and then red curry paste, mm-hmm. a good quality red curry paste. Let that cook for a little while. Then you add a bunch of coconut milk, um, and then let that cook for a little while, and then some uh, some clam broth as well, and that becomes the broth. Then you strain that out, and then you open the cl- and you steam the clams in the broth. You cover mm-hmm. it, and then um, as soon as the clams are open, they're cooked. Then you put them in the bowl. You take the broth, add a whole bunch of fresh cilantro and scallions onto it, and then just pour it over the over the clams, and you're done. Honey, did you get all that? <laughs> so I, I, I and serve with uh, some bread, some toast, some fresh some fresh bread with this. All right, we're down because I know I have to get you out of here. Sooner rather than later, we're down to our last um, few questions. Uh, that that dish, by the way, I'm not exaggerating. My wife, it's got to be 10 or 15 years ago. She still brings it up. She's like, be sure you ask him about that because we've never been able to find. I have a stack of your cookbooks at home. I brought two of them in today. We've never been able to find that really? in any of your cookbooks. All right. And we cont- it continues to haunt me, that, that one dish. Well, now you know how to make it. So, All right. Well, now she knows how to make it. I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of grills. She's in tar- charge of, uh, of that sort of stuff. So the, the one key question I ask everybody, and, and take as much time as you or as short as you want with this. So what do you know about the cooking business, about uh, business in general, and about the television business today that you wish you knew 25 years ago when you started. Oh, all of it. All of it. I knew nothing. I mean, I still know nothing. But I mean... I'm going to stop you right there and say, I think you mo- know more than nothing. Well, I mean, listen, it, it's Let always... Me, go I'm going to rephrase it. I'm going to ask you a different question. What do you wish you knew 25 years ago would have made your life easier? Um... What, um, that's a very tough question. Isn't that a good question? I mean, honestly... Nothing. I mean, let me let me really? tell you. Yeah, let me tell you why. Um, I've had a wonderful career. It's been so rewarding, and so incredibly enjoyable, that I think that not knowing things and learning them along the way has been really a big part of that. The journey, yes, has led you to who you are today. Yes, I, 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 um, I function with goals in front of me. Mm-hmm. And if I had no, if I just knew everything then, I I wouldn't have as many goals as I had then, and so to be able to kind of you know try to reach those goals and in some ways surpass them, in some ways not meet them, um, that's been the the fun part of it, as you call it, the journey. I think that that's that's what it's that's what it's all about. So you come out of the French Culinary Institute. Do you have a set of goals when you graduate? You're saying, this is what I want to do. I want to be my own chef for a few years. I want to open my own restaurant. I want my own Throw Down with Bobby Flay TV show. Well, no, the TV was <laughs> never thought of. I mean, because there was no precedent for it. So I never thought I'd be on television cooking. But I always wanted to open a big, bustling restaurant that had a lot of energy, and that turned out to be Mesa Grill. Mm-hmm. So... That was my only goal. And, and how does Mesa do out in Vegas? I would imagine that's a hop and join out there. Does really well. We've been open ten years there. A- any plans to open a- another one outside of New York City? 
Uh, it's definitely possible, but you know, I like New York and I like being in New York, and so you're in New York. You're I'm a New Yorker. Irish kid grew up in New York. Yeah. You strike me as a, a you know, really a, a deep down inside sort of New Yorker. You're oh not... no, the, the, it's not deep down inside. It's it's throughout me, straight through. Yeah, you got a touch of a New York accent. Yeah, just a touch. I mean, I, you know, my favorite thing about New York is the subway. <laughs> you know, I, we came greatest. here from my office, and someone said, "Oh, we're going to be late." No, it's three minutes. Yeah, I'm on 40th and Park. And I, oh no no we're gonna we're gonna trust me and it's right up in this building you pop up yeah. and it's it's I find it like fascinating I I'm just wondering if they'll ever get around to finishing the Second Avenue subway well, no they'll, they'll probably gonna close it up again and start again in ten years right they've been going it, on forever but you know my most valuable thing in my wallet is my Metro card <laughs> that's really fascinating Bobby thank you so much for being so generous with your time of course we've been huge fans of your restaurants for. As far back as I can remember, going back to Miracle Grill, uh, we've been speaking with Bobby Flay, restaurateur, cookbook author, uh, Food Network star. If you enjoy this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, and you'll see the rest of our shows. Um, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter. I forgot to ask my Twitter handle, at Ritholtz. You're at, on Twitter? At B Flay. At B Flay to check out uh, Bobby Flay. You can also see bobbyflay.com. You have a list of all your shows. Mm -hmm. You have recipes. You have cookbooks, everything uh, else. Uh, I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>